Thank you, Josh. You have already uh, heard and seen that this week was windshape camp at Pathway Church, and this sanctuary throughout the week, actually until just a few hours ago, was turned into for all the world the Starship Enterprise, and up on stage was a remote-controlled robot that looked for all the world like the grandchild of R2-D2. And there was video and audio that was cranked up with that bass that you feel in your bones more than you hear in your ears. And the room was full of so much energy and exploding power that it is greater than anything anybody will see uh, tomorrow night in fireworks displays. Uh, it uh, was an, a wonderful time, even with the sweltering heat. The campus was full of running and squealing and laughing and playing and most importantly of all, learning about Jesus Christ and his love and claim on all of our lives. So congratulations to Dan and Ginger and Christy and Jonah and Josh and Josue and the Windshape team that's already moved on to their next week and to you for your generosity and uh, prayers that helped make all this happen. We're back in the book of Ephesians, we're ending chapter 2, and unless I speed up a lot, we're not going to finish the book during this stretch of my season with you, but it looks like maybe we will get just to one of my favorite prayers in all of Scripture in the third chapter, so I'm glad it looks like it's working out this way. But this week, we conclude the second chapter as Paul has introduced so far the, the power of the remaking of the Christian life, and then what God pulls together as display cases of love in the church. Last week we said the greatest gift that the church can give the world of greatest relevance is simply to be the church. And this week, Paul gives us three great pictures of what the individual Christian life and the church herself corporately is meant to be. And the first image is a strong one. We are to be citizens of the kingdom of God. In our series on the parables, we learned that the kingdom of God is that realm, that domain in which life is lived as God intends it to be, perfectly within his, his um, intention for his creation of human life. And as Christians, as believers, you are citizens of that kingdom with all the rights and privileges appertaining thereto. But before Paul puts it positively, he puts it negatively, he says that Formerly, you were xenoi in the world, aliens, strangers. The word literally means foreigners. If you were raised in a different culture from the one you are living in now, you know the difficulty and the cost of moving to live in another culture, or if you're visiting another culture, as Stephanie, I plan to this uh, September as I get an opportunity to teach uh, for a week in a foreign country, you know that still brings some difficulties, but they pale beside the adventure and the excitement and the exoticness of, of feeling and experience another culture. But if you are moving there, then uh, you may feel at first like you don't fit in. The whole experience can be draining. It's more difficult to make yourself understood 
Then the people who are right next to you, there's a whole word for this, it's called culture shock. It can involve loneliness and alienation and disorientation and exhaustion and oppression and even depression. So Paul is saying here at the outset negatively, until you are in a relationship with your Creator, until you are connected to Jesus Christ, you are a stranger and an alien in this world He has made. Because the very best of literature, I was an English major, you probably know by now, and the very best of literature, whatever else you can say about it, if it's good literature, it is honest. And because of that, one of the great themes of literature hits upon this note. The writings of Faulkner and Hemingway and Sartre and Camus and many of the greats are dominated by this observation. Jean-Paul Sartre, for example, wrote a book in which uh, it's written in the form of a, a biography, a confession, kind of like a diary of a man who tries to live for himself. He opts for freedom and individuality, and so he feels alone in the world and, and alienated and fragmented and separate. And so he tries to give himself to others, and he feels taken advantage of. So when he pulls away, he feels isolated, and when he gives himself, he feels used. And so he gives up on life, and he calls his experience of life with everything he's walked through in the shocking title of the book, Nausea. That's the sum of what life in this world was for Jean-Paul Sartre, nauseating. He doesn't fit in. He's a stranger and an alien. Paul is saying, until you are rightly related to God, this will be your condition in life. You will be out of place. You will be alienated. You will experience what Sartre calls nausea, or my favorite philosopher, Søren Kierkegaard, a Christian, a sickness unto death. But the second word that Paul uses carries the great promise, so much for that desultory opening. Let's go to some, some brightness. And it comes to the positive word that Paul uses. He says that you are a parakoi or a citizen. If you are legally a citizen, you have certain rights and privileges. Citizenship enfranchises you and gives you legal status. You have appeals. You can redress wrongs. In uh, Acts 22 and 23, Paul is about to be flogged by the Romans and killed by the Jews. And he appeals at that time to his Roman citizenship. And the Roman commander who was about to beat Paul, the text says, became afraid because he knew the rights of a Roman citizen. And indeed, the Romans protected Paul from being killed. And indeed, the great bulk of Paul's ministry, the bulk of his writings, the bulk of what we have been blessed by him in his life comes after that occasion. There is a God-given authority to the state. Augustine calls it the kingdom of the earth, the kingdom of man. And, uh, and this Independence Day weekend, how are to relate to the state variously at various times, but Scripture gives us the guidelines. The default position is that we are to honor the state. It is God's authority. It is God-given not to advance the kingdom. There's a limit to what it can do, but to restrain evil, to help us live together in this fallen world in some kind of peaceable state. So Romans 13 says we are to 
honor the civil authorities. Revelation 13 says that the civil authorities can become demonic whenever they become utopian, whenever they try to claim everything, whenever they try to usurp the place of God, they alternate, the state alternates between God's delegated authority for the restraint of evil and a, a demonic, distorted purpose. And as Christians live in the world, we oscillate between that, knowing that we are to be faithful citizens of the state when we can and when it is to be honored. And that is, that is most of the time but with our first allegiance and our primary allegiance and our primary citizenship in the kingdom, that is the way we can be the best citizens of the kingdom of man and the kingdom of earth by being first, our first allegiance to the kingdom of God. You are citizens of that state. There's a moment in which you are not a citizen unless you're born into a country and you're always in that. But, but as we become citizens, as we've changed citizenship, uh, you can prepare for it, you can study for it, you can work for it, but there's a moment when you aren't and there's a moment when you are. There's a moment when you're married and there's a moment when you're not married. People increasingly in our culture are saying, oh, we have a piece of paper isn't important, the relationship is what's important, that's what makes me married. It's not the case. Marriage is a vow. Marriage is a covenant. That's why the desecration of marriage is so important, not because it's a certain kind of sin, but because it desecrates the ways in which we are invited to reflect one of the most important parts of God's character, covenant. I give myself to you. I will myself to you. In covenant and a vow, there are things we exclude because we want to go deep in one place. I give myself to you. I covenant myself to you. Why won't you covenant yourself to this man or this woman? Why won't you take the vow? Well, I don't want to close my options. You don't love them enough. Marriage is about a vow. Citizenship in the kingdom is about a covenant to Christ. You and no other. Friday night, I went to one of the free concerts of the Redland Bowl. I, I like the price. And it was a tribute. What a great word. It wasn't a, an impersonator, which it was, it was it was, but it's a tribute to Johnny Cash. And it really was a great evening, a great concert. I, I saw one of our members here, one of, the, one of the most musically gifted people in the church, said, oh, you like Johnny Cash? And I was sort of embarrassed, and I said, yeah, well, I, yeah. <laughs> And he said, well, it's not very good music, is it? <laughs> so I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> but uh, there, his first hit in 1954, I think it was. Uh, uh, sadly, he wasn't able to, 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 to keep up to it entirely, but the sentiments are great. Uh, because you're mine, I walk the line. Not because of a duty, but because I love you, and for all the benefits that come from you, I... I consecrate my life to you. That's what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom. God, so I, I, uh, I love being here in Windshape uh, Camp for those times I was and to see the simple, unadulterated, undiluted gospel shared from this stage. God forgive me if I haven't done that uh, well enough and regularly enough and every Sunday myself, but God created the world out of His abundant love, out of the 
out of the overflow of the love he has from all eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit, out of no need, because he is love and has love and gives love, he freely and generously decided to share it. God created the world and all that is in you and me out of his love. And we turned our back on that. We turned another way. We rebelled and we lost it and we fell and darkness came into the world. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever might believe in him and know him and covenant their lives to him might have an eternal loving life relationship with him forever and ever. And it only waits for us to take it, for us to be brave and bold enough to take his hand. That is the gospel, and we heard it here this week. That's what it is to be citizens of the kingdom. Paul gives a second picture of the church. It's very brief. It's there in 19b. Do you see it there? It says that we are members of a household of God. We're not only citizens, but we're part of a family together. It is to be adopted in the family of the Lord's sons and daughters. That means our relationship together is familial. Paul expands on this in 1 Timothy 5. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. I, I actually, I never read that. I'm applying it to myself before, but I want you to hear that. Don't rebuke an older man harshly. Like that, treat younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. There's the principle. We live together in the family of God, not only as citizens, citizens but as family, as mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters belonging together. That is our relationship in the pews. Look around. You are the family of God. You are the household of faith. God gives us biological families to be honored and to learn lessons in, and they come naturally. We have these special bonds and responsibilities. We have a special bond towards our nuclear families, but our closest relationships, hear me, our closest relationships are the familial relationships in the body of Christ. I have a brother who is... 10, almost 11 years older than me. And because we have the same father and mother and raised in the same home, I feel a kind of closeness and care and empathy towards my brother that I, I share with no other person, in some ways not even my sister, because he's a, he's a male. And I work to keep that alive. And it's important to me. But because he hasn't yet accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord, I feel closer and I actually am closer to every man and woman in this room who is part of the household of God. We are brothers and sisters in the deepest and most significant way possible. I have a sister who is six years older than me and who does know the Lord, who helped raise me, and through her eyes and my mother's and father's, I came to see much of what I viewed about the world. Brothers and sisters are genetically closer than any other human being in the world. Uh, my wife used to get, well, not exactly spooked. She liked to see us together, but it was hard for her. She said, you know, you gesture the same way. You 
talk in convoluted sentences the same way. You give this big introduction before you say what you want to say. You laugh the same way. John, you even lose your keys the same way. <laughs> My sister and I are genetically connected, but just as families need time together, uh, we do so as church families. Out of the six functions of the church, the first is to worship, and the second is to, to grow and to learn, and the third is to serve, and the fourth is to evangelize. No particular order here, except worship does come first. And uh, the fifth is to do missions. The sixth is to love, is to fellowship together, is to become the family and build these bonds when you spend time together. Some of it comes intrinsically through serving. Those who work together on Winship Camp have a team spirit that has been built through that. Some of it comes just by studying the, the Word of God together. Some of it is a byproduct, but it is important work of the church to be together to, to engraft our lives into one another. I was so encouraged, I was a little bit surprised, but I was so encouraged after one of this quick announcement that we could get together next Friday night, February 8th, at uh, the Inland Empire 66ers baseball game for a Pathway Church night. We'll be up in the bulletin board. Just overnight, 76 people signed up. One night, no, no dogging, and you've got your tickets. Uh, it's too late if you didn't sign up for, for that way of getting it, but we're in section 119. It's on the third base side. If you want to come on your own, uh, be someplace, place around there. I'm sure there's seats in 119. You won't get the all-you-can-eat barbecue. You can buy it a la carte. I'm very hopeful about that, but I, I, I am holding out the possibility that that we won't want the all-you-can-eat barbecue. So you might not even miss out on, on that, but we'll see. We'll be together, and you can come with a la carte tickets. We'll be the church together Friday night, and that's important, an important time. Not long ago, I stood at Fort Lincoln Cemetery in Washington, D.C., presiding at the funeral of my uncle. He was a member of the same church I was, First Baptist Washington D.C. growing up. So I saw my uncle and aunt every Sunday of my life. They were close. We vacationed together. and He was a wonderful man, an engineer, one of the first. Uh, he opened up NASA and was in charge of a major section of NASA. And it was a, I expected for it to be an emotional time. And with my cousins, and it was. But what I did not prepare myself for I had forgotten, it was so many decades ago that there was a time in some, at First Baptist Church, Fort Lincoln Cemetery, I don't know how these things happen and what business arrangements, but there were a, a, a group of plots that were made available. A lot of members of the church bought them. There I went to bury my uncle, my cousin who I was raised with, and I was walking over the graves of the people who had invested their lives in me. The sun and shines and the Leonards and the Canes and the croissants. At the reception, she was still alive as the 99-year-old widow, the son of one of the pastors of First Baptist Church, who she had married, and he went on to be the leader of the Navy Band, and we would go down on Washington summer nights like this one, and hear Doug Porter conduct the Navy Band 
probably on this weekend many times. It was a moving experience, and I reflected on how our lives are interwoven. The faithful ministry of that generation has reached out and affected you. I don't pretend that my ministry is so wonderful or, 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 or important, but it has affected you. The ministry of that generation has reached out to you through me. This church has been touched by the ministry of a set of dedicated, imperfect, committed individuals who kept putting one foot in front of another and loved a young boy and other young boys and girls and who have remained together and involved in one another's life for generations and pathway has stories like that. That's one of the things I love so much about you. You are part of a tapestry of love that is stretched through generations and that God willing will stretch through generations to come. That is part of what it means to be the family of God. So it is no small thing that this Friday night we will be fellowshipping together, simply fellowshipping together as the church. We are made for one another. We are made to fit together. We are made to be involved with one, one another. And part of the work of being the church is living and loving and fellowshipping. It has been a joy for me to see how much of that has happened here at Pathway and to intersect with that during this period of my life. And I know it will happen in the future. We are citizens of the kingdom. And we are members of the family of God. Thanks be to God. And then Paul spends most of his time on his third image. We are temples of the Spirit. Temples are the place where the divine is met. And human ingenuity and human imagination and human creativity has built probably the most beautiful buildings that human hands have ever constructed for houses of worship, for temples, buildings designed and dedicated to meeting and exalting in the divine. But here, and running throughout the New Testament, we find that Paul is teaching that the real dwelling place of God is not buildings made with human hearts, hands rather, but places formed in human hearts. That's the place where God purposes to actually dwell. Gordon Fee is a New Testament scholar uh, I admire greatly. Everyone that knows his work admires him greatly. And his monumental work on the Holy Spirit is really on just on, it's, it's 700 pages, but it's really just on Paul's view of the Holy Spirit has one of my favorite titles in all of literature. He calls it God's Empowering Presence. As temples of the Spirit, that means human lives, your life and mine, is to house God's empowering Spirit. The promise of the text is that the Spirit of God is going to fill His people with His power and presence. Let me invite you to take an inventory of your life and see in what ways that is true. If you are not a believer, how would your life be different if you were actually 
a temple of God's empowering presence. And if you are a believer, in what ways can your life give witness to the fact that you have access to, that you are in fact not just on a page of piece of paper, not just in words, but the dominion, the domain of God's empowering presence. How does he make himself real in your life? How are you different because of it? I put that test to myself this week, and I went initially to dramatic places. Why not? I thought of my ordination after Jonah's ordination last week. I I thought of my rededication to Christ, which I shared with you, I think, my first week or two of being here. I thought of the time in which uh, my sister had a traumatic brain injury, and I was on a Christian retreat, and we had lost uh, my mother and father, and had all the gratitude and grief for that, but that you expect to face in life. This was unexpected, and there was a particular bitterness to it, and I went up to the mountain on the retreat center where we were in, where a cross had been erected, and I prostrated myself, and I remember the content of my prayer, and I said, Lord, I know you are sovereign, and I will praise and bless you for whatever you send. If, if you take my sister's life now, I will look for your goodness and grace in it, and give you thanks for her life, and I will work for that, but you ask for our heart, and I cry out to you to spare her, and that was a powerful prayer time. I didn't know how God would answer it. He did spare my sister's life, and she is with us uh, to this day. She was in a coma for weeks and really was not herself. She has no memory for six months, and indeed wasn't herself for six months, even though her eyes were open, but I thought of all those stories. And I did tell you a little bit of that one, but I thought, you know, of course God works in dramatic times, or we expect that. How about ordinary times? How about in and out? How about day in and day out? And I realized I hadn't praised him enough for that, but of course he does make a difference. I do grieve. I do grieve that my life falls so short of the life he calls me to be. And I'm every bit of work in progress, and I grieve over that, but... He has not failed me. And I realize that because of his empowering presence, I don't go through life any day of my life alone. That when I read Jean-Paul Sartre, I find that odd and confusing. Life is not nauseating. It is full of life and joy and gifts and creativity and suffering, yes, but people coming together in Christ and for Christ and friendships and family and citizenship. I don't have a day of my life when I feel meaningless or purposeless or unaccompanied. I'm grateful for that. That is the gift of God's empowering presence. I had the privilege of reading a few weeks ago a uh, book that is coming out translated by one of the members of this church, written by his mother, Lisa Chun. And it has sold well in Korea. It's now going to be released in the United States, and it is a magnificent book. I, I would say that even if Chris wasn't one of my closest friends, and he is. But it is magnificent. It's a guidepost on how to have a deep, intimate fellowship with God. And it's full of... Uh, scriptures and exercises and workshops, I commend it to you. I'm going to be looking for a group. I might lead a group somewhere that works through this book. It is a marvelous book, and in her preface, uh, Lisa writes, God, 
would faithfully answer in what I can only describe as echoes of his love. She described some of the difficult circumstances she's gone through in life, and he answered. And what can she also only describe as echoes of his love? Isn't that a great phrase? God taught me to feel the presence of the Holy Spirit and to cultivate intimate fellowship with him and to walk with him, really walk with him. Our text says that we are to be the temples of the Spirit of God. But on the way to that, it also says that in this temple that we are building with our hearts, Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. He's the one who we rest on and build up between. And I, I thought of the uh, occasion of a, a dear, another dear friend of mine, Doug Stevens, when he lost his sister, his adult sister. She was driving late one night in Northern California and uh, the rain was hard and she crashed into a telephone pole and he said it was a difficult time. She had a husband and children and parents still alive and a brother and a sister and he said I He's a minister, consultant, one of the most gifted Christian servants I know in the world. And he said, I stayed strong for the family. I held myself together. I even went to a, a grief uh, counseling sessions with my sister, but I stayed strong and all in, inside. My heart was breaking and it was boiling and he hated thinking about it and People trying to reassure him, well-intentioned though they were, only made things worse. At least you have one sister still alive. Ooh, I would cringe at that. At, she, at least she's not living as a vegetable. God needed her in heaven more than we do here. He said all those were hollow. And then he said, unexpectedly, serendipitously, the Lord ministered to him. Two months later, he had a dream. He never thought much about dreams. He thought that they were kind of fanciful, although Scripture does talk about God speaking through dreams. And in this dream, he found himself in heaven. He'd never, that he could recall, ever dreamed about heaven before, but he was there, but still immersed in this tension, in this grief, in this anger, in heaven, but still restless. He said there is a big mob scene of stupefyingly happy people. <laughs> but Doug said he wasn't having any of that. I'm not here for this. He said, I need to find him. And he looked beyond that crowd and in the clearing in a meadow, he saw this figure talking to this group of people who were in rapt attention, listening to every word, listening to him speak. And Doug said he pushed through the crowd and walked right up to him and got in his face and he didn't even bother to tell him who he was. He wouldn't, didn't thank him for letting him to his heaven. He just had one thing on his mind and he said, Jesus, he said, I interrupted him in the midst of a line that must have been very important, but I didn't hear it. He said, do you know what happened to my sister? She's dead. And I have to ask you some questions. And I'm not leaving until I get some answers. And he said, 
he knew his voice was shrill and he was completely out of control and out of line, but he said he didn't care if he offended anyone. He was way past caring about that. He said, why didn't you save her that night? Why didn't you let me save her that night? Why didn't you let me know she was in trouble? Why did she have to die in the prime of her life? Why was she out so late? Why didn't you let her friend drive her home? Didn't you know she had children that need her? Her family needs her. Her student needs her. I need her. All the while, Doug said this figure was smiling softly and listening intently. And my friend Doug wasn't impressed. He said he hated that look of compassion that was coming back on him. He said he needed answers. So this figure simply raised his hand to slow him down. And he spoke to him and said simply, I will take all the time you need to answer all the questions you have. But first, I have a question for you. And my friend Dex said, oh, no. Here it comes. He does this all the time, taking someone's questions and turning them around and turning them against them and showing them up. And this is what he does, and now he's going to do it to me. And what could I do? He's in charge here. This is his place. And he's going to ask me, why are you trying to barge into my heaven and start asking me questions? And can we talk about all the sins you've committed and you dare to challenge me? And he knew he would just have to accept it. So he shrugged and he said, okay. What's your question? And the figure said, do you want to see her? Do I want to see her? That's his question, Doug thought. And at just that moment, the figure turned and gestured towards the person who was making her way towards him, dancing. It was his sister alive and beautiful and dancing as she came, and his sister loved to dance. And he said to me, Christ's startling question was the unexpected answer that met me and my real need. Is she all right? Are you paying attention? Are you taking care of her? Can we really trust you in this unusually, vividly, and incredibly ministering dream ended? Christ is the foundation of the temple who dwells in us as we become citizens of the Father's kingdom and family of faith together and as we become temples of the Holy Spirit with Jesus Christ as our cornerstone foundation. I don't know how God is ministering or will minister to you through the warps and woofs of your life, but if Paul is correct, and I am betting my life that he is, then the promise is you are called to be citizens of the kingdom of God with all the rights and privileges thereunto pertaining. And you are called to be part of the family of faith as adopted children and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and grafting yourself into one another's lives. And you are also called to be not only members of his household in his forever love, but powerfully the temples of his empowering.
presence. Almighty God, our Father, there is no greater feeling of liberation than to experience the freedom from sin and death that you have provided through Jesus Christ. Today our hearts and souls are free to praise you and for this we are eternally thankful. And on this Independence Day weekend we are reminded of all those who have sacrificed for our earthly freedom. Let us not take our freedoms both physical and spiritual for granted. May we remember that our freedoms in this country were forged from insights drawn from your word and that we are perhaps unique in the history of the way human beings have arranged to govern themselves under your authority. We thank you that biblical insights have found their way into our national constitution and for that we thank you. Help us, Father, to remember on this Independence Day weekend that we as Americans are united not by race or religion or blood, but by our commitment to freedom and justice for all. When we focus on ourselves, when we fight each other, when we forget you, forgive us. Lord, bless those who have served and continue to serve our country, meet their needs and watch over their families with mercy and favor. And as we face the days ahead, may we have a new clarity in our aims and responsibility in our actions and humility in our approaches and civility in our attitudes, even when we differ. And may we never forget that one day all nations and all people will stand accountable before you. Help us to live our lives as citizens of your kingdom and members of your household. Help us to live in ways that glorify you. Give us the privilege this day to be a blessing in others' lives and grant us the opportunity to introduce people into the kingdom that can only be found in knowing and being known by Jesus Christ, your Son, and our Savior, in whose name we pray.